Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Jerry, can you hear me? I can. So how have you been? I've been well. I've been well. Who am I speaking to? My name is Michael. I'm the one who interviewed Michael. you. Michael. Oh, last you, time. you interviewed me last time. Yeah. Yes. It's good to have you back. It's been how long? About two years. Oh, longer than that. I think longer. we spoke Maybe in three 2019. Years. Yeah. Uh, four years, dude. Was this during COVID or before COVID? It was just before COVID because it was just after uh, Reboot came out. Well, the good news is we both survived COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but but we we lost three years from our memory. <laughs> that is true. We've lost three years of just been taken away by the powers yeah. that be. It's scary yeah. when you think yeah. about it that way. Three years is three percent of your life if you live until yeah. you're a hundred. It, it it's crazy. It's it's just crazy what happened to all of us, you know. And uh, I I hear you. I hear you. Well, so let's make the most of what we have left. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to get straight into it. Obviously, we know each other. We've spoken before. Sure. It's good to have you back on the show. Now, in the last three years, you've obviously been speaking to leaders around the world, coaching some of them as well. What's the big things in the field of leadership today? So uh, let me take a step back and, and talk about that, because as you recall, in uh when we last spoke we spoke about reboot my first book yes and if you remember the one of the core premises is that better humans make better leaders yes i remember that and a key organizing question was how have i been complicit in creating the conditions i say i don't want what has occurred what occurred, how I spent the pandemic, and in a sense, what I think was going on in response to what I was hearing from my clients was uh, the result of that was an exploration of a deeper question or an extension of that question, which was that uh, uh, to ask oneself the question, how have I been complicit in and benefited from the conditions in the world I say I don't want? Now, what do I mean by that? You know, before the, the recording started, we were talking about the, or maybe even while the recording started, we were talking about the pandemic and yes. kind of the lost years. Well, what was happening during those years, aside from millions of people dying? What we had was an incredible, uh, an incredibly painful division going on within our country. What we had was an incredible, incredibly challenging um, uh, uh, cry for help from a larger community. Um, what we had was an increasing demand on the part of employees 
for business leaders to take a stand, to take a stand in a world where there was an incredible amount of um, division and strife. And there continues even to this day where you have um, human rights being denied, where you have civil rights being denied, and you have an, a, a um, silly argument around, say, wokeness. And so how I spent my pandemic was writing a book called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. And what I lay out in that book is the work that I think is necessary to build on the work that we that I laid out in a reboot about how we confront our own demons rather than project those demons onto our organizations and how we come into relationship with who we are and who we have belonged to so that we can then do the very, very important work of being the best possible leader we can be so that we can then create what I refer to as systemic belonging within our organizations. So that was a long-winded response to your question, which is what's been going on for leaders? I would argue perhaps the most challenging experience for leaders that they've yet experienced. So now I'll pause and let you get a breath, a word in. <laughs> no, I liked it. I like long-winded answers when they have a <laughs> pot of gold at the end of it. So I have a question. When you were talking through this, it sounded very somber. Is it a somber topic to you? It's a vitally important topic because I'll tell you, Michael, um, children are dying because we don't know how to come together. And, you know, this book began with me trying to confront my own experiences, right? My daughter, Emma, challenged me one day with, with the phrase, she said, you know, dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. And she said this as she was going out protesting the murder of George Floyd. So in a sense, Michael, it is somber. But I would say I would prefer the adjective serious. This is a really important topic. So let's distill out the premise of the book, because given the seriousness of the topic, let's make sure the audience really understands how they would apply this and why it's different from what they've been doing before. So, so let's unpack it for them. What would they need to do to apply the principles in the book? Well, if you remember from Reboot, one of the first things we talked about was this notion of radical self-inquiry, yeah. understanding how who I am and who I have been shapes how I am as a leader. Well, I take it further back in this new book. And I say, 
understanding and reuniting with your ancestors, with their experiences, and not just the myths that we tell about our ancestors, reuniting with the parts of ourselves that we have more often than not disowned and disconnected from, so that we can then hear our way to the other person's story. You know, Michael, a funny thing happened. We we last spoke in 2019. And yes. In 2019, this this thing happened to me, which was that I would go around the world, literally, and I was giving talks uh, in support and book readings uh, from Re Reboot. And invariably, somebody would come up to me having read Reboot and said to me in some form or another, your story, the story that I told in Reboot is my story. And I write about this in Reunion. One of the people who came up to me, I was in a, I was doing a book reading in Dublin and, you know, it's a room full of folks, including mostly white folks, except that there was one black woman who sat in the very first row. And she sort of nodded a lot during the talk. And at the very end, she came up to me and she said, you know, uh, I need to tell you that some of the things you wrote about, th those things happened to me. And I was kind of tired and my eyes kind of glazed over. And I said, oh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. And then she said, no, no, no. My father died when I was 13. And I paused and I was kind of leaned in to listen more. And she said, yeah, he was killed on Robben Island. Now, Robben Island is where Nelson Mandela was held. And I said, wait, he, he was, he, and she said, yeah, he was killed by the South African police. We're from Zimbabwe, and he was a freedom fighter fighting against apartheid. And then she said to me, your story is my story. And I was in shock because how could her story, how could my story resonate so much with her that she would see her own story in that story? And this didn't happen just once. This happened again and again and again and again. And as I sat with that experience, and I continue to get notes from people to this day, as I sat with this experience, I realized that implicit in that experience was a possibility for an empathetic bridge that might, just might, overcome the divisions that are resulting in people being killed. That if we could reconnect with our own stories so that we can then open up the possibility of hearing the other person's story. We might then create the conditions where we all feel like we belong. I like this model of leadership. I haven't seen it being used anywhere before. How did well, you develop you. this way of thinking about, <laughs> because I, I've never seen anyone 
talk about a model of leadership. And I talk to many CEOs, you know, going back into their past, understanding their stories and so on, that of their ancestors. That struck me. I'd not seen that model before. How did this develop? Is this originates from the question your daughter asked you? Is this something you've been thinking about for a while? Well, it's an, for me, it's a natural extension of the work I've been doing for almost 20 years now, which is that in order for, for what do we, what do I always say? Better humans make better leaders. And it's a kind of obvious statement once you say it, right? Mm. But if it's so obvious, why do we have such difficulty in having good leadership? And we have difficulty having good leadership because the process of becoming a better adult, of becoming a better human, is hard. And if we extend this out from this point, the process of really understanding what the experience of our ancestors were, really understanding it, and not just the myths that we tell ourselves, but talking about the people in our family tree that, quite frankly, get lost, right? If we identify as straight, where were the queer folk in our family tree? Because we didn't, I, I know my family didn't talk about them. The phenomena of transgenderism isn't new. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about the way, you know, my family, for example, benefited from the movement towards whiteness. We don't talk about these things. The opportunity is to explore these things, to then lay the conditions so that the people that we work with, the people that we build our companies for, can feel a connectedness. And in the end, I think that's a greater goal than even increased profitability. In your experience, have people been comfortable going through this process? Because my experience is that most people seem wary of digging too far into their past. I think you're absolutely right. So the question is, are they, are they comfortable? And maybe the better question is, how do we make people comfortable? <laughs> what is the catalyst to, to get them to have this? Yeah. So what I would say is, it's not about making people, it's about inviting. And uh, if you remember what I did in Reboot, I was open and honest and authentic about my own experience. Yes. Because I have a foundational belief, Michael, and that is that people who hold power have to go first. I like that. That makes sense. Leaders must lead. Leaders must lead. Leaders must be willing to lean into the hard spots so that they can make it safe for the rest of us. I think it's a moral responsibility of holding power. What I saw happen during COVID, maybe you, you had the same observation, is that COVID forced, encouraged, you pick the word, many leaders to start paying attention to the well-being of their employees and so on. Mm -hmm. But as we've gotten further and further away from COVID, 
it seems like most or much or at least a large percentage of leaders and leadership behavior started shifting back to the hard ways of management. And it seems that the, the trend where we worried about the mental wellness, the connection with our employees was being reversed like a tide going out. Do you see that happening as well? And if so, given what's happening, how do you invite, as you say, leaders to have this discussion? Well, one of the things I write about in the new book is the fact that um, our employees are, are, are asking for this. They're, they're, and, and I think you're right to link it back to the pandemic in some ways. But the old way of doing things, they're not going to be satisfied with anymore. And, and you know, last year, the Edelman Institute with working with Harvard uh, did a survey. And they said that 70%, 70% of American employees want their leaders to take a stand. 70%. Now, this is against a backdrop when you might have a governor in Florida go after Disney because it takes a stand. Or you might have a retailer targeted because they sell T-shirts to preschoolers that have rainbows on them. I mean, this is, we are confronting right now and I get the impulse, right? Nobody wants to talk about these things. We just want to go back to work. The problem is that the world continues to change. And I think the current generation of young employees and further the next generation of young employees and young consumers are going to demand that those of us who hold power do something. Do you feel that businesses take enough of a stand? No. So the premise is they can do more, and this is a mechanism for them to do more. Elie Wiesel, a great philosopher and writer who wrote so eloquently about his experience in the Holocaust, once said, neutrality always favors the oppressor. That's a powerful statement. Yes. And I've never yes, heard that before, but it sounds powerful. Yeah. The, I understand that what I'm asking for is a transformation. It's a new definition of leadership. Or to put it another way, it's an expansion of the definition of leadership. It's leadership as, as being a citizen of the world. Yes. I want to switch gears just a little bit here, right? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there is a large group of people who think that we cannot trust businesses, that they need to be regulated, they need to be better controlled. We give them too much power. They run unfettered and you know, take advantage of consumers. Mm -hmm. Should we or can we trust corporations to have the power to make change here? Well, I don't know that we, we can regulate people to do those things. I think that that will backfire. 
but I think that uh, the the um, onus is on the well-intentioned leader, the leader who is unsure about what to do or what to say when employees walk out in support of a social cause. And what I'm suggesting is saying nothing, which is the standard operating procedure, yes. is not acceptable. What I'm suggesting is that there's a way through this and that the way through it is to lean into the difficult positions, the difficult work of really understanding your own relationship to what I would call your own sense of belonging. Who are you in the world at large? How does that relate to what your employees might be going to or their family members? There is an opportunity here. I know it sounds like work and your question about trusting, can we trust them? I think that if we expect people to act as their best selves, then some percentage of them will act as their best selves. I think that's if, the main part. That's right. Not everyone is going to make the shift. But of course, if not. enough make the shift, it is a shift. That's right. That's right. It's not, I'm not talking about trying to convince everybody. What I'm trying to do is to talk about the people who feel like they're not sure what to do. And it doesn't occur to them that one of the first steps that they can take is to look inward. Yes, that's well said. I read a report recently, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, which said that during the recent wave of tech layoffs, mm -hmm. DEI offices were disproportionately represented in that group, where it seemed that when companies were faced with economic choices, they pulled away from some of the social stances they had made. Yeah. And I mean, anecdotally, I've seen that to be true because I know some clients who were in their roles and they were mm -hmm. amongst the first tranche to be let go. And what I've seen is companies make promises, but mm -hmm. when faced with economic tension, they tend to pull back on these things. Right. I'm not going to comment on whether it's right or wrong. What I want to know is, how do we make these shifts more durable? I, I think you're asking the right question. And, and first of all, I, I saw the same report, and there are lots and lots of those kinds of trends going on right now. Yes. And I and 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 to be clear, I think that the 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 work that I suggest in my book mm -hmm. is not uh a replacement for or in lieu of good work towards equity. Yes. But I think it's foundational. And I think that in in a sense, work that focuses on increasing equity that doesn't also include having those who have the most power within the organization do this kind of self-reflective work is bound to be limited at best in its success. Yeah. I suspect that 
there are a whole bunch of complex reasons why uh, there's a pullback, if you will, from that commitment. Um, one is, let's name it, a kind of structural racism that that exists out there. And it's like, well, you know, we did what we could. Well, no, that's not acceptable. Another would be um, the backlash that companies face. I mean, uh, do you recall a few months ago when Silicon Valley Bank was going down? Yes. And there was a silly, stupid argument made that their efforts for DEI and other forms of what are called ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance uh, issues was somehow a distracting contributor to how Silicon Valley Bank went down. What utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. That feels to me like something that we, at least in the United States, do too frequently, which is blame the victim. We blame poor people for poverty. We blame immigrants for challenging economic conditions. This is just silly. Yeah. And as soon as you lean into it, we know the truth of it. I, I think if we if we unpack some of those mo movements, you'll see that that um, it's a kind of a, a backlash, and a DEI program is an easy target because it doesn't have an obvious contribution to profit margins. Well, I wouldn't say obvious. I would say doesn't have a short-term payoff. Very well said. That's right. I think they have a long-term payoff. In fact, I remember working with a client once. This was about a decade ago. And they had achieved something that I thought was almost impossible in that country where they had boosted their minority hires from something like 5% of their workforce to 48%. Mm. And they were incredibly proud of these numbers. And I think at some point they got a 50%. And they brought us in to develop the corporate strategy. And then we were working on the organizational design of the company as well, mm. the organizational mm. structure. Mm. And one of the things that struck me is that they had hit their numbers. But if you looked at the core roles in this bank, the minority hires weren't put into the core roles. They were put into ancillary and support roles. Right. And then when that bank went through a really bad patch many years later, when it came to retrenching, the core roles were protected, but the non-core roles were released. Right. And one of the things I've noticed about the discussion, we have these discussions about numbers and so on. It's mm. not about the number. It's about the quality of the role. It's about equity. It's not about just diversity. Yeah, you can get diversity, but it can mean it's not empowering. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And often we get caught up in numbers, but we don't get caught up into saying, what is the experience of the person mm -hmm. who is that number? Yeah. That, you know, that's why I, I do like the term belonging because um, hopefully it's more encompassing than uh, that sense of uh what I would call performative allyship, um, doing, you know, increasing recruitment and diversity in recruitment um, of, of all sorts, but not really 
addressing the underlying issues as to whether or not uh, all employees feel that they belong. Yes. You know, I, I think that that's, that's both the challenge and the opportunity before us. It is. And, you know, part of me, having traveled all over the world and seen how many parts of the world operate, is we have a, a large conversation and a needed conversation about changes in the workplace and so on. But it seems to me that we also need to make a lot of changes in our educational systems, our schools, mm-hmm. because we have to empower and prepare from a young age. That's right. And that's right. It's great we talk about what companies do. Everyone can do more. But we also need to not lose focus on how we start teaching, training, preparing young minds from the time they get into kindergarten, five, going into middle school, and so on. And some of that conversation gets lost all over the place. I, I think you're right, uh, Michael. I think that um, one of the sources that I draw upon, that I draw strength from, is um, uh, Buddhism. You know, and as I wrote about that in my first book, I wrote yes, about it in the second I book. And, you know, one of the core tenets is the notion of our interdependence upon each other. And that, uh, you know, we are like fingers on a hand. Our individual expressions are unique. But in the end, we're all connected in some profound yes. ways. And I think that where we fail our children and where we fail ourselves in our society is that we lose the power of empathy. We lose the power of compassion. We lose that that uniquely human experience of being able to see your story as my story. That when a, when a mother, a migrant, from Central America makes her way all the way through Mexico to the border of Southern United States. Is she really all that different from my 16 year old grandmother who made her way from Southern Italy to the United States? Is there really that much of a difference? Or if we can really understand what was happening to our our past and our ancestors, Maybe then we can teach and spread empathy as a power to overcome that which divides us. That's very well said. I like that. Because when you when you start talking about people as a mess, it doesn't do them justice because everyone has a unique story. But as you very well pointed out earlier, is that our stories are actually very similar when you break it down. That's right. And I love that example you used. You used a really good example, which is um, which uncle of mine was gay or something like that. Yeah. I never yeah. thought about that, to be honest. Right? Because I was trying to think about, about my family. Gee, there was an uncle. There were some rumors about him. He was treated very badly. I wonder what happened to him. Right. Right. Now, let's imagine for a moment. I don't know if you've got children or not. But let's imagine that that one of your children or one of your descendants comes to understand that their own 
gender identity is something that they're struggling to understand. And the lack of family discussion. Yes. Right? Whereas if, if our families can welcome in the parts of our family's tree, family trees that were disowned and dismembered, if we could remember those parts yeah. and bring them back in, what opportunity does that create for our descendants? You know, I was thinking of this, the stories we tell ourselves within our family are like little audio programs. <laughs> and you need representation within those audio programs. Exactly. Or exactly. your family member thinks they're not normal. That's right. And what they do is they dismember parts of themselves in order to fit into the family. Yes. It's a very subtle point because it sounds like it's so minor. Why should you worry about it? But these are the things that that matter in the long term. They cause these little cracks. Yeah. Well, what I also explore is what about the not so pleasant parts of our family story, right? I talk about yes. a CEO client who struggled with the fact that that her ancestors enslaved people. And how was she to hold on to that? Because in the family story that they all told, they were hard scrabble farmers who grew tobacco in Virginia. And I said to her, well, hold on, who actually did the growing? And that then led to this deeper understanding of what some of her employees were coming to her with, feeling underpaid for their labor. Just that phrase, underpaid for the labor. Do you see how insidious this can be? Underpaid versus never being paid. There you go. Oh, but I'm providing opportunity to them. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, it's interesting because to me, it's really an economic issue. You do the right things, you create more economic value. It's good for everyone. Mm. Everyone benefits. You treat people well, you make them happy, you make them feel like they belong. They will work harder for you create far more value than you're paying them. Everyone wins in this, right? Yeah, you made, you made the point earlier that uh, there may be a short-term hit to profitability, but in the long term, you're increasing what I would call the resilience and sustainability of the enterprise. It's basically training. You're training people to think in a different way. Every training in the world has a time period when you pull people away there's a dip in productivity, but eventually it goes up, right? Yeah. So to me, it would be, you know, when I have this discussion with CEOs and so on, I always pull them back to the economic picture. There is a business case for doing this. That's right. Everyone's going right. to win. This is not about, when I talk to executives, I tell them, this is not about morality. This is not about feeling good. This is about, it's good for everyone. Everyone's going That's to win right. if you do this. That's right. And one of the things that I've noticed about this entire topic is that people treat it like it's like you're doing a social good. To me, this is an economic good. I think it's both. 
It is both. I, 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 Absolutely. Don't think that, that I don't think CEOs need to shy away from doing social good. Because there's an economic good as well attached to it. Sure. But it's like just because there's an economic good doesn't mean or, or, or the economic benefit, which I agree with you, is there. Not everything has to be justified for an economic benefit. We can free ourselves from the shackles of that. We can free ourselves from the straitjacket of that, that says it has to improve output. It has to improve productivity. It has to have an economic benefit. Sometimes there are things that we should do as people because it's the right thing to do, period. And that those people include leaders, business leaders. We know this. We know this when we close our eyes at night and we lay our head down on the pillow. We know this when we look at our children and we think about the world that they're inheriting. We know this when we're in a car commuting to work and we hear of another shooting at another school. We know this. Sometimes the social good is reason enough to do the right thing. And I agree with you. It makes good business sense. You know, a nice way to think about it, it's the cost of civilization. Yes, well said. I agree with you completely. <laughs> it's the cost of civilization. You know, if you study all successful economies, societies, empires, if you want to use the word, yeah, they worked because they were civil towards each other. That's right. You cannot be uncivil towards each other and work as a team, right? That's the opposite of teamwork. And it starts with that simple concept of being civil to people. Can, can I tell you a story sure. that hasn't been in one of my books? So my first career was as a reporter for a technology magazine called Information Week. And um, I was a pretty successful reporter. And I developed a close relationship with a lot of the companies I covered. And there was this one company based in, in Minnesota called Control Data Corporation. Old folks who are listening to this may remember the name of the company. Anyway, I went out to do a long piece on the, the, the company because I was always fascinated by uh, Bill Norris, the CEO of the company, who had this commitment to what we would have termed it back then to social responsibility. And he would get pillared by uh, the... by. Wall Street, because he would do things like uh, locate a factory in East New York in Brooklyn, which true story he did. And I remember interviewing one of his right hand uh, men, a guy by the name of Norbert. And, and I said, what, why are you doing this? And he quoting the then head of the NAACP said, well, we decided to put this factory in Brooklyn to make a difference in the economic lives of some of the people there. And the head of the NAACP said to him, you can't do business in a community that's burning. 
And that stayed with me now, 30 years, 40 years. I think you can't do business in a community that's burning. Or if you try, I think it's wrong. I agree with you because you just need to adapt the business for your the region That's you choose right. to operate in. That's right. And we've seen this many, many times. And my background is helping mining companies. Have you seen where we operate? We no. operate in failed states where the government doesn't work. We've got to build hospitals. We've got to build schools. We've got to build highways. We've got to build housing. And we do those things, right? Because we know we can make it work. Right. It comes down to commitment and the type of leader you want to be. You can make anything work if you plan it well enough and you have the commitment to see it through. And obviously there are exceptions to the rule sometimes. But I agree with you. You have to make a commitment and stick to it. So what happened to this company? Well, control data, uh, <laughs> they did go by the wayside. They were, But they were bypassed not because of their social policies. They were bypassed be, by by other technology companies. At one point, they held the title as uh, building the fastest computers in the world. And their technology did not keep up. And eventually, the company was broken up into different pieces, and then private equity people uh, took it over. But it's not because of their social policies. It was because of changing technology and the inability to keep up. Yes, but the story is still powerful because it shows you how people create these walls in terms of what is possible and what is impossible and they stick with it without That's thinking right. through the implications. That's right. We all create these mental traps in our heads. We tell ourselves it's true and we then, if we're too tired to think whether it's true, we just keep repeating it in our heads. That's right. And we That's need right. to always step back and ask ourselves, what are these rules we've created for ourselves? And is it actually true? Right. And people That's don't right. do that enough. That's right. Jerry, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Ma Michael, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll be sure to get you a galley so you have that in hand as well. Yes, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon, maybe not in three years. And hopefully <laughs> not after another world-beating virus that shuts down the world. Um, so yes, we're going to have you back on the show soon. And it was a pleasure. And I really enjoyed the conversation, especially the model of revisiting our ancestry and the conversations we have. You got it. it was I'm actually going to, to use here. it as well. You got it. You take, take care, care of Jerry. yourself, Michael. Bye now. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.